Welcome to Digital Squared, a podcast that explores the implications of living in an increasingly digital world. We're on a mission to inspire our listeners to use technology and data for good. Your host, Tom Andriola, is the Vice Chancellor for Information Technology and Data and Chief Digital Officer at the University of California at Irvine. Join us as Tom and fellow leaders discuss the technological, cultural, and societal trends that are shaping our world. My guest today is Jeff Salingo. Jeff has written about higher education for more than two decades and is a New York Times bestselling author whose latest book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions, was named among the top 100 notable books of the year by the New York Times. He's a regular contributor to The Atlantic and is a special advisor for innovation and professor of practice at Arizona State University. He also writes a bi-weekly newsletter on all things higher ed called Next and co-hosts the podcast, Future You. During the podcast, we cover Jeff's take on how education is evolving in the wake of the pandemic, what it means to create lifelong relationships with students, and why investing in continued education for higher ed employees is essential to a university's livelihood. Jeff, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jeff, I've been a huge fan of your work over the years uh, when I came into higher education in 2013. I'd like to ask you, let, let's talk about the post-pandemic university. Uh, you know, Where are we now? What do you see for the future? Well, I think that there are certain things that are going to stick from the pandemic. I think the pandemic really upended people's habits, uh, how we work, how we shop, how we learn, uh, where we live, and how we access uh, things in our lives. So when our habits are upended in that way, I think there is obviously going to be lingering impacts on on higher education, in some ways good. The pandemic really gave higher education the permission to think differently. You know, most institutions went online in some form and in very big ways. Most institutions rethought their academic calendar. Residential institutions thought about how students live on campus and whether they actually need to be there all the time. So let's just take those three elements uh, for one. First, I think online education is here to stay and in a much bigger way than ever before. And we're not talking about fully online, but it's clear to me that online is now going to be a piece of every undergraduate's career in some way uh, that allows them, whether it's a hybrid class where some of the classes online, some of the classes in person, or whether they're taking fully online classes, even as their residential students face-to-face on a campus. The second thing is the academic calendar. It really taught us that we don't necessarily have have to begin the semester in September and ended in May, where summers are incredibly underutilized, uh, particularly in places where there's so much demand for higher education. So it, it allowed us to rethink the calendar where students can be served all the time where education is always on uh, and kind of rethink that that time-based calendar that has really served higher education for a long time. And then third is this idea of of residency. We know that the residential undergraduate experience is, is pretty incredible, but it's quite expensive and it and, and can't be really accessed by everybody. Uh, and But yet we can give students kind of a, a short-term residential experience and give them experiential learning outside the classroom. So I can imagine a future, for example, where students might live on campus for a couple of weeks of a semester and then go off and do work or do a co-op or do undergraduate research. So I think in just those three realms, uh, we are already thinking differently about higher education post-pandemic. Yeah, Jeff, that's that's fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm one of those unique people that had a private sector career before I came into the public sector and, and higher education. 
you know, and I've been talking with my leadership about this idea that I've seen in economic, you know, downturns. It's I call it accelerating out of the curve, right? We're all kind of we're forced to slow down during the pandemic period. But uh, successful organizations usually get a jump coming out of these periods and change their positioning and change their relevancy in the marketplace, if I could use that term. Can you share with us some of what you see in terms of who's getting it right and who by 2030 do you think is, you know, what, what does a 2030 successful university institution look like for you? Well, I don't think anyone's getting it exactly right now uh, because I think that we're still we're go- moving through a period right now where we're kind of have one foot still in the, the kind of getting out of the pandemic and one foot in the future. But one thing I think is going to be different in the next 20 years, maybe even the next 10 years, is that we are going to be talking about a different set of institutions than we're focused on now. That doesn't mean the most elite colleges and universities in this country, public and private, are going anywhere or that they're going to become essentially weaker in the next 10 or 20 years. But I think that we're going to start to talk about a second set of institutions that are doing certain things that are incredibly important for our economy and for our society. So among them, for example, that they're serving greater numbers of students at scale, right? For the most part, most of the elite universities we talk about are tiny and small, and they're not necessarily expanding their undergraduate or graduate student bodies. So I think we're going to be talking about a second set of institutions that are actually serving the public good by growing to some sort of scale to serve those students. Second, I think we are going to be talking about the hybrid institutions. Uh, Again, I think those elites are going to be focused mostly on face-to-face education, but the second set of institutions is largely going to be partially online, partially face-to-face, and a a mixture of, of two. Third, I think we're going to be talking about the second set of institutions as infusing workplace ready skills Uh, and competencies for students. That could come through shorter degree and credential programs. So we're not necessarily going to be talking about just the legacy degrees we talk about now, whether that's the bachelor's degree, the associate's degree, or the master's degree, but other types of credentials that give people real workplace skills that get them jobs. But the other thing I think we're going to be talking about in terms of that work-infused piece of the curriculum is that I think everyone's going to be leaving college with not only a traditional degree, but some sort of workplace credential that actually helps them get a job immediately. And that could be an industry-recognized certificate, such as a Microsoft or Google or an AWS certificate that goes along with their degree. Or I could imagine every history uh, degree getting data visualization as uh, as as a workplace skill. So that's the third piece, I think, of the second set of institutions that we're going to be talking about 10 years from now. Yeah, and I really like that. I think it resonates with some of what we've been talking about, right? That, you know, the days of just a student walking out with a piece of paper saying they passed a set of academic courses may have worked for the last century and the challenges of today. There is this need for competencies, right? The top eight competencies that work uh, workforces are looking for, especially early in the career, you pointed out to, right? Specific skills lead to jobs. Right. Organizations like Salesforce have built entire economies, right? And, and a skill that's a very learnable regardless of what you what you major. And so I think, you know, a lot of our analytics is really driven around this idea of there's an academic and a practicum component that our students should walk out with in addition to that piece of paper that they said they passed all the, you know, all the academic courses that they were supposed to. I find myself, I'd like to switch topics a little bit here and talk a little bit about kind of people and talent in, you know, in our industry, our hiring industry. 
I find myself talking a lot about talent right now in terms of you know, kind of where we are, the challenge we have in uh, attracting it, retaining it. And I've been using this quote from Henry Ford. He said, you know, the banks can take our money. They could burn down our factories. But with our people, we could rebuild Ford, uh, he once said. And, you know, I noticed that you give this talk on building a culture of continual learning, hiring and building an adaptive workforce. But as I was, I was reading up about you, it seems like you focus them on corporate clients. Do, do you bring that message to the higher education leaders? And I'm, if yes, I'm curious what kind of reaction you get, because we're not known as being the most nimble and agile of industries. <laughs> no. And the other thing that I find fascinating about higher education is you're in the education business, but you do a, not you personally, but a higher education overall does a poor job of educating its own workforce. Right? So many other industries spend so much time, effort, and, and money on continual education for their workforce and upskilling and reskilling them throughout life. Right. But we see this now through the great resignation we're seeing throughout all of society, but particularly in higher ed. I hear so many higher ed leaders complaining to me as Oh, we can't find good people. We can't, uh, you know, we can't hire good people. And I asked them, well, how much have you spent in terms of continuing professional development of your own workforce? We sell these services to other industries, but we don't do it ourselves. The other thing I don't think we do a very good job of is we don't talk about higher education as a career to our own undergraduates. Think about it. We have a captured potential workforce as undergraduates, and we talk to them, our career centers, everybody else, talks to them about jobs in every industry, except the own industry that we work in. And I think things are starting to change. I think we're starting to see college leaders, uh, especially those that I think are really at the forefront, really starting to invest in their talent because they know it's important. But at the undergraduate level, what I'm seeing is because of this workforce shortage over the last couple of years, there's a number of entities now that are really investing in uh, helping their own workers get skills, their own students get these skills. So in IT, I think this is a really big example, right? A number of IT shops in higher ed are hiring their own undergraduates essentially as apprentices because they can't find staff to fill their IT staffs. Uh, and I increasingly think, by the way, this should be a requirement for every vendor who works on campus. If you are a software provider, if you are a uh, you, you provide food services, you provide housing services, whatever you provide to a college or university, I think as part of the contract, every college and university should say, you have to help train and educate our own students in these jobs. So if you want to open a coffee shop on our campus, teach them how to become a manager. If you want us to buy your software for our ERP system, then train them, you know, as you know, these massive ERP systems kind of cut across higher education, you know, go outside of higher education. If you're an expert in Salesforce or Workday or anything else, you're going to be able to get a job elsewhere. Well, make those a requirement as part of that contract so that we're starting to educate are young people, not only for jobs potentially in higher ed, but at least giving them real skills outside of the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. Now you're speaking my language. I think this is one of the things coming from the outside in. I, I was really shocked at the point that you just made about how an organization that is committed to educating does not practice it on itself. You know, And so uh, I, I did some things when I was in my office in the president role where we started an academy to you know build leadership amongst IT professionals so that we had CIO ready candidates. We we actually have done some great things here about leveling up, right? So I, I've been sharing with people that the research that that I've gotten 
is that when we lose, let's say, a high-end technical person, the cost of replacement is about two and a half X what we were paying that person. Right. And so I'm like, and so, you know, we have strategies where we call leveling up, where instead of going back out to the market for a level three or level four, we ask the existing staff to all level up one and we hire in a level one, in many cases, going after a graduate from, from one of our schools. Or we've now even started building pipelines from our community college that are much more focused on really skill building for job placement, building a pipeline for those students to get trained there. And then their first, you know, their first work assignment, which might be an internship or it might be their first professional position, is with us. So we built, we're building pipelines so that we can build critical mass of technical skills and expecting that they're going to leave us in a few years, right? I mean, the, the idea that higher education is you're coming here to work for the next 40 years, that that didn't that didn't appeal to me when I was 22. And I don't think it appeals to a 22-year-old today. What they want is they want challenge, they want meaning in their work, and we have to we have to meet them where they're at. So it's nice to get some validation that we're that we're thinking the right way. Yeah, I was I was intrigued by the organization you have called Academic Intelligence and this this concept of idea storytelling. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what that is and and how you describe providing you call it providing institutions with both key insights and actionable intelligence? Tell us about idea storytelling. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So what I, I have done, I mean, essentially now has happened in my own industry. So I, I've worked in an industry that was disrupted well before higher education, which is journalism. You know, I, I wanted to be a journalist since I was in seventh grade. Uh, and, and clearly, uh, you know, partway through my time at the Chronicle uh, in the early 2000s, journalism was, was under incredible attack from the outside and maybe attacks, not the right word, but it was being disrupted much like higher ed is, is now. And, you know, we had Facebook and we had Craigslist and all these things just start chipping away at traditional journalism. And the thing now about journalism that you see very often is that people don't trust journalism institutions as much as they trust individual journalists. And so what I did when I left the Chronicle seven years ago is I started to really think, I built up a, a, a trust among my followers and, and how could I serve them in different ways? And so that's what I've done really in my, in my work under this umbrella of academic intelligence. I, I produce a, a, a regular newsletter every other week called Next. I co-host a podcast with Michael Horn called Future You. I produce these white papers that are underwritten by large uh, companies, but that are editorially independent that really kind of push new ideas into the higher education uh, marketplace. I host what I call virtual office hours, uh, where I bring in guests to talk about kind of the new themes in higher ed. So in many ways, I have created a journalistic outfit under my own brand, but that are, you know, that's really an individual as an individual creator, which is happening, by the way, in every other industry, not just in, in higher ed. And so that's really the, the focus here is really around ideas, is to go out there, do the research, which I do, uh, to find some of the new players, the new innovations in and around higher ed, and spread those ideas through these different uh, channels, whether that's you know the webinars, uh, whether that's podcasts, uh, these office hours, things like that. And then do you find, you know, in this model, right, I think it's very interesting, right? You, you responded to the disruption to really trying to figure out where the puck was going to be, what the, what the marketplace wanted and carved out a, a niche for yourself. You know, do you find that you have a different relationship with your readers and listeners than you did when you were in traditional uh, journalism, let's say before, before the transformation? 
Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely much more of a uh, of a personal relationship you have with your followers and readers. It's really a, a function, I think, today of of the media. You know, it used to be you had a byline in the newspaper, and that was it. And and sometimes people would try to. You know, they wouldn't even put your phone number in the newspaper. And then there was a time where they would put your phone number and your email address, and the people felt like they could reach you. Now you have, you know, social media, you have podcasts, you have all these other ways of people interacting with you, LinkedIn, things like that. So it's a much different relationship. It's a much closer relationship uh, with folks. And, uh, you know, I try my best. I, I can't get back to everybody, but, but it's nice to know that. You know, you're not just writing. It used to be when I started, I was a journalist. You would write an article. It would go in the newspaper. It would be put on a printing press. It would be delivered to somebody's home the next day. And you had no idea. Did they read it? Did it have any impact on it? On you? Now you kind of see the impact it has almost in real time. It's much different than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. That type of kind of a relationship capital that, that you're talking about with your listeners. I mean, do you, do you think that universities understand that they have that opportunity with the the prospective students that are looking at them and the students who, who get there and the students who ultimately leave them and they put this term on them called alumni? No, I mean, we really do think very old school, I think, in higher ed about the entire life cycle of the student from the moment we try to recruit them through the moment that they're undergraduates, where we don't, I think, focus enough on the student experience to alumni, where we focus on kind of the social aspects of alumni, which, by the way, Facebook, LinkedIn, other things do much better than alumni groups and not necessarily on their professional development. I, I, I always think that alumni affairs could be remade into this idea where the thing that alumni need the most is help in their careers, is help in their professional lives. And, and alumni affairs, I think, could play a critical role in combination with educational or academic affairs at a, at a university. But even, as you said, going back to the top of that funnel, where you're recruiting students and, and they, they want to have this personal relationship with colleges and universities. And I think colleges and universities just haven't figured out how to do that at scale yet. Yeah, I always imagine this world where you, we talk about this concept of a lifelong relationship with the, the students that, that graduate from our institution. You know, I, I always envision this world that I don't think we, you know, we're, we're trying to work our way towards where they stay in contact with me, but not to try to sell me into the next program, but to add value into my life, right? I mean, uh, I, I always talk about, you know, as you go through your career, what gets valued is what you know and who you know. What you know is the next continuous learning opportunity that you need. And the university is well positioned to maybe have that or to point you to a place, you know, where you can best get that. And then who you know is connections, right? And, you know, if I was a director of finance and I really wanted to be a CFO and my alumni organization should know that, that they should have a profile of me that said that that's my career aspiration. They should be introducing me to CFOs that are live in my region so I could go get a cup of coffee and do an informational interview and, and find out what is it like to be a CFO? And what are the things I need to do from here to ultimately get to that job one day? That's value added, you know, relationship for lifelong with your, your institution. But I agree, we're not there yet, right? We got to really transform our thinking. Can you comment on your work with uh, Arizona State University? I know that you have a, a working relationship with them. You advise them. I'd love if you could talk about it, you know, talk a little bit about that and, and uh, how that started and how that's evolved. Yeah, so I uh, I got started with Michael Crow, uh, who's the president of ASU, back when uh, I was about to leave the Chronicle, and I had an idea. Uh, at that time, I had just published my 
my first book in 2013 called College Unbound. And I was being asked uh, by colleges and universities to come and, and speak to their senior leadership teams about innovation. And it, to become, to be honest with you, it was a little tiring, just jumping on planes all the time to go and talk. And so I developed this curriculum around the book, around innovation, and, and just started talking to different presidents and ended up talking to Michael Crow. And we talked about how to develop kind of a program around innovation for innovative or your rising leaders in, in higher ed. Uh, and so from that, we developed this thing called the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. Uh, at the time, President Crow was trying to develop a different par- a different partnerships with Jack DeJoya, who's the president of Georgetown University. And uh, he said, well, you know, why don't you pitch this to Jack and see what he thinks of it? And I did, because I'm here in Washington, D.C. And so we ended up partnering with Georgetown University on this academy, which started now in 2014, uh, called the Academy, again, the Georgetown University, Arizona State University Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. We've had more than 200 people uh, come through the uh, through the academy. They're mostly mid-career people in higher ed around innovation and that mindset. Many have gone on to become presidents and chancellors. In fact, we have two chancellors within the University of California system uh, came through the, the program. We have the provost at Arizona State University. We have a number of presidents elsewhere. And we have also people who stayed at their institution and just pushed together, pushed forward new projects uh, as well. So it's been a great experience. It's, you know, I've many other projects follow that at Arizona State, but that's really how the whole thing started. And I'm curious, I mean, what are the key mindset shifts that you try to help the the members that go through the program with, right? Because because a lot a lot about leadership growth and being ready for the the next challenge is letting go of some of what you learned that made you successful to this point and really putting a different set of ideas and paradigms in your head. What what are the big shifts in that program? Yeah, I think one of the big shifts that we try to get them to understand is is the how important EQ is over IQ in, in higher education. I mean, we tend to have picked our leaders and chosen our leaders in higher ed because they came, you know, they they were leaders within their discipline, not necessarily because they have the the EQ, uh, you know, those soft skills to get people to follow them. And that's really at the end of the day, when you're a leader in higher ed, vice president, president, whatever it might be. You're trying to persuade people to follow you. You know, you don't have a lot of levers in higher ed. You can't provide them big stock bonuses and big bonuses in any way. You don't have a lot of levers around compensation, period. You know, so you have to figure out other ways of persuading them to follow you. And, and I think those leaders that have this vision, that have this EQ, um, and we see it all over higher ed in terms of, you know, including Michael Crow at ASU, I think those are the institutions that are moving further and faster because they have those leaders. Excellent. Excellent. All right. What's next for Jeff? What exciting thing are we going to read about, hear about next from you? Um, Well, I think it's time to write another book, I'm told. (laughs) So uh, there will be some news on that, hopefully, uh, in the new year. Uh, I'm working on some ideas now, and we'll hopefully get those uh, somewhere, move move them towards some sort of idea to, to an actual publication at some point, probably not in 2023, but but after that. Uh, I'm continuing to really think about what the post-pandemic university really looks like. I think most institutions right now are still suffering from enrollment declines, and they're trying to figure out how to re-enroll students, how to engage students they already have, and how to get back students who may have dropped out during the pandemic and before the pandemic. So I'm really interested in, in trying to profile institutions that are doing interesting things on that front. 
Yeah, no, it'd, it'd, be, it'd be curious to kind of get your perspective on something we've been talking about, right? We have an initiative called a Data-Driven Student Success, but we're really moving beyond just thinking about helping students graduate on time and closing achievement gaps from different diverse groups and really getting into the heart of some of the structural barriers that higher education has created that are holding students back, right? I mean, you know, the answer to graduation rates shouldn't be, well, just change majors. Uh, and you'll be fine, right? Our economic, you know, prosperity of the future, you know, really requires that we build really strong workforces of tomorrow in the sciences and the technologies and the engineering. And we have a, we have a lot of our system is built around driving people out, leading people out when they worked so hard and they had such a high bar to get into an institution like ours. And, you know, if you don't know, you know, UC Irvine, you know, we're not only in the AAU, but we're also minority serving institution uh, designated and Hispanic designated, which makes us kind of unique in terms of research excellence and very, very diverse student population. But what we're looking at now through our, our data program is how do we really think about removing the structural barriers that help our students succeed, right? You know, at an organization where we already have very accomplished students who got in in the first place. And we think that that's kind of the future, combining with some of the things you mentioned earlier, which is it's not just about what happens in the classroom. It's about the competencies and skills and workforce readiness that accompany what they do here. I wonder, you know, where does that fit into what you think universities need to be able to deliver on in terms of the promise of higher education to our society? Well, I think that higher education has to really think much more broadly than the swath of students that we have long thought of as as kind of quote unquote college ready, which is a, a term that I kind of hate because everybody needs to be college ready in some way. I mean, higher education clearly is needed. What, however you define college education is, is, is needed throughout life now um, beyond, you know, education behind high school is incredibly important, but does everybody need a four-year degree immediately? Does everybody need a master's degree period, right? So we have to think of these different education structures so that higher education is the umbrella but it's not the one size fits all for everybody and that we are enabling more people to get access to it, whether that is short-term certificates that eventually stack up for a degree, whether that is a, 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 a two-year degree that eventually transfers into a four-year degree and does a much better job than we do that now, or whether it's some sort of form of lifelong learning where we're welcoming students back and we're giving them continuing certificates that event, eventually maybe stack up to a master's, for example. We can't think of it as this one size fits all pathway, however, through higher education. Excellent. All right. We're going to leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Please keep us informed on all the wonderful things that you do for us and, and for this industry. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It was great to talk with you.